Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Well, thank you, Scott, and your team for leading us this morning in our uh, musical worship. We have indeed already drawn near to the throne of God and in our music and in our scripture readings and prayers, and we're just trusting that the ministry of the word now will do that as well. As we look around us in the world, uh, one of the outstanding things, I think particularly in the region in which we live here, in Waterloo Region, we see people desperately searching for meaning and significance in life. Many people conclude, as did Solomon, that life is utterly meaningless, futile. Some try to deal with their futility through drugs. Others try to find fulfillment in their work or sports, or illicit sex, or whatever it might be. Few seem to realize that none of those things bring satisfaction, because the meaning of life cannot be attained apart from God. So the challenge of the ages is, how can we draw near to God? How can we have a right relationship with God? How can we have spiritual wholeness and uh, fulfillment? Search for it as you might. You cannot find it on your own. God himself provided a way to find him and to know him through the sacrifice of his son. Now, we usually associate the word sacrifice with something that we do for someone else at a cost to ourselves. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament did indeed cost the people something. They brought either an animal such as a bull or a goat or a sheep or a dove or a bird like a pigeon or some food. But for them, sacrifice meant more than just giving up something for someone else's benefit. For them, sacrifice conjured up a picture of worship. Sacrifices were offered daily as well as periodically at certain feasts. And the climax, of course, of all of the sacrifices occurred once a year on the Day of Atonement. All of these sacrifices pointed forward to one final sacrifice. That's what we want to consider uh, together this morning. That one final sacrifice as we prepare ourselves for communion, which we will enter into a little later in our service. So if you turn with me back then to Hebrews chapter 9. Unfortunately, I don't have time, even though Kevin would like me to, I'm sure, <laughs> to unpack all of the verses that he'd read. We're going to focus primarily on verses 24 to 28, but we'll begin uh, reading at verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 9. Again, it's one th page 1006 in your pew Bible. 
Hebrews chapter 9 then, beginning reading at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, that is the ones that Kevin read about in the earlier verses, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come into your presence this morning together as a congregation, those of us who are trusting Christ as our Savior come before you as purged worshipers, those who have been made clean through the precious blood of Christ. I pray that as we study these verses together this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to open up our understanding, to receive the truth, and to respond to them appropriately. I pray that our hearts will be touched with affection for Christ. I pray that our consciences will be pricked as we examine our lives before you. I pray that our wills will be redirected in obedience to you and to your word. And I pray that our minds will be activated to deal with the challenging verses that we have before us. I pray all of this for the honor and the glory of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me say, just uh, as a uh, side uh, note, if you've never studied the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you to do so. The book of Hebrews, in many respects, is unique in as much as, first of all, we don't know the author, And second of all, it's the one book in the New Testament that shows us so clearly how the old connects to the new. In other words, the progression from the old to the New Testament. Our subject then this morning is Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice or all-sufficient work of redemption. The passage teaches us that the work of Christ is all-sufficient for all people, for all time. The work of Christ is all-sufficient for all people, for all time. Now, as Kevin mentioned, the book of Hebrews is a book of contrasts. It contrasts the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to the Old Testament priests and their sacrifices, and so on. When contrasted with the sacrifices of the high priest... Christ's sacrifice is shown throughout the book of Hebrews to be superior to any other sacrifice that has ever been offered. In fact, all the sacrifices 
under the old sacrificial system pointed forward to Christ's one final sacrifice. In that previous section that Kevin read for us earlier, the author has argued conclusively that Christ's blood sacrifice is superior to any blood sacrifice, be it bloods of the blood of bulls and goats in that old sacrificial system. It's not that those sacrifices were unnecessary. No, he's the author says, they were necessary to purify the tabernacle from its contamination by sinful people. That's what is intended in verse 23. If those sacrifices then were necessary to cleanse the earthly tabernacle, how much more does the heavenly reality to which they point, or how much more does the heavenly reality need to, uh, need to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these, so that we can be made fit to enter into God's presence? That's the point of our passage. The contrast between Christ's sacrifice and the earthly sacrifices. And in this we find that the work of Christ is all sufficient for all people for all time. The first contrast then in our passage is that Christ entered heaven, not the tabernacle. Christ entered heaven, not the tabernacle. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary or tabernacle made with hands, which is a copy of the true sanctuary, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The high priest's offering gained him entrance into the tabernacle, an earthly, man-made, holy place, which was only a copy, or we could say a model, or representation, or antitype, if you will, of the true holy place. But Christ's offering gained him entrance into heaven. The holy place where God dwells, for the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, Acts chapter 7, verse 48 says. In heaven, he, car he carries out his present ministry, which is to appear now in the presence of God on our behalf. That's where Jesus is now in the presence of God, interceding with God as our advocate, representing us directly before the face of God, the perfect man in heaven, interceding for us, his imperfect people on earth, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, pleading our case as our advocate before God, presenting himself before God as the one final and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. For it is through him alone, chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 say, that we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So Christ has appeared in the presence of God on our behalf to open up the way for us to enter God's presence without constraint. That's the first contrast between Christ's sacrifice and those of the priests. He entered heaven, not the tabernacle. The second contrast is that Christ made one offering, not many. Christ made one offering, not many. He did not do this, that is to say, enter heaven to offer himself repeatedly 
as the high priest enters the sanctuary every year with the blood of another, for then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. The high priest offered sacrifices year after year. And on that day of atonement, that apex, that climax to which they all pointed, on the day of atonement, he entered the earthly tabernacle or sanctuary to offer repeatedly the blood of animal sacrifices to cover both his own sins and the sins of the people. But Christ did not enter heaven on the basis of making repeated sacrifices like the high priest. If that were the case, the author says here, he would have had to sacrifice himself many times since the foundation of the world. He would have had to suffer repeatedly from the beginning of time because that's how long sin has existed since the human race began, since the foundation of the world. The whole notion of repeated sacrifices emphasizes, you see, their inadequacy to ever permanently wash away sins. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 say this, For since the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to offer since the worshipers, having once been purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So do you see the argument? I think some of you say, no, I'm not seeing it. Well, here's the argument. The Old Testament sacrifices were only a shadow, only a copy, only a representation of the reality to which they pointed. They repeated these sacrifices over and over again because they were inadequate to permanently remove sins. That's why they were offered repeatedly, year after year. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals, their blood was shed. Because by them, they were, and it was shed repeatedly, because by them, they were never made perfect once for all. Instead, the Old Testament sacrificial system served as a vivid and perpetual reminder of their sins, year after year. For it is impossible, chapter 10, verse 4 says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. By contrast, Christ made one sacrifice for all time. His one sacrifice would never be repeated. His one sacrifice was final and it was permanent. It was all sufficient for all people for all time. What the high priests could not achieve after centuries of sacrifices, Christ achieved in one final sacrifice. As Hebrews 7 verse 27 states, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day like those high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people, since he, that is Christ, did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ's sacrifice was offered once. That indicates to us that it was at a predetermined 
time according to God's plan, or as Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time. His sacrifice was offered only once because it didn't need to be repeated. It didn't need to be repeated because his one final sacrifice was sufficient to atone for the sins of all people for all time. His sacrifice was sufficient to provide for a continual, permanent access to God. And so the first contrast then is between Christ's sacrifice and those of the priests is that he entered heaven, not the tabernacle. The second one is that he made one offering, not many. The third is that Christ offered himself, not another. He offered himself, not another. Verse 26, the second half. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin or to put away or to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Christ's incarnation, you see, marked the climactic end of the previous age and the historic beginning of the new age. That's when Christ appeared, at the end of the ages. His sacrifice or sin marked the end of one dispensation and the beginning of a new. It ended one age and inaugurated the age to come. It was a pivotal turning point in history. His sacrifice marked the end of the old era, that is an era of the law and its sacrifices. That was an era of perpetual guilt, perpetual futility in the repeated sacrifices that could never take away sin. The Mosaic sacrifices had served their purpose to show on the one hand that man is hopelessly sinful, and to show, on the other hand, that Christ's sacrifice alone can atone for our sins permanently. Christ's sacrifice then marked the end of an old era, the era of law and sacrifices, and it marked the beginning of a new era, an era of forgiveness and grace. The Mosaic sacrifices then pointed to his one final and efficacious sacrifice, a sacrifice which was sufficient for every sinner of Adam's race, a sacrifice that put an end to the age of ritual and condemnation, a sacrifice that began the age of grace and justification. Christ appeared once at the end of the ages, it says, to put away sin. A sacrifice which didn't merely cover sin, as the Mosaic sacrifices did temporarily, but a sacrifice to put away sin, to remove the penalty of sin permanently, to remove the debt, the debt of sin that we owed. His incarnation was for the purpose of atonement. He came to deal with the sin question. That was the purpose, that was the, and that was the effect of offering himself, that is to put away sin. Christ appeared then to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
His sacrifice was then a voluntary self-sacrifice for our sins, not like the high priest who offered sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of the people, for Christ had no sin of his own. Not like the high priest who sacrificed the blood of an animal, but Christ offered his own blood. He shed his own blood. He sacrificed himself, you see. Not the blood of goats and bulls, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling those who are defiled, chapter 9, our, our chapter and verse 13 says that Kevin read for us, but the sacrifice of himself. That's what's so remarkable. He sacrificed himself, and that sacrifice was permanent forever. The Spanish Civil War that ran from 1936 to 19. Uh, 39 was a conflict between nationalists and the loyalist republicans in Spain. Sitting on the top of the highest hill in Toledo in Spain is the Alcazar, a 16th century fortress. The April 16, 1992 edition of a publication called Daily Walk recounts that during one dramatic episode of the war, the nationalist leader received a call in his office at the Alcazar. The call was from his son, who had been captured by the loyalists. His son was telling his father of the, their ultimatum that if his father did not surrender the Alcazar to them, they would kill his son. The father weighed his options, and after a long pause and with a heavy heart, he said to his son, then die like a man. That father sacrificed his son for the deliverance of the Spanish nationalists. But Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. Lastly then and fourthly, the fourth contrast is that Christ will appear for salvation, not judgment. Christ will appear for salvation not judgment. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, all people are destined to die once. That includes you destined to die once. There's no chance to repeat life. Death ends life here on earth. It's an appointment that we all must keep. You can't escape it, nor can you change it. Death is the consequence of sin, and all have sinned. But death is not the end. After death, there's the judgment. Apparently, just before the death of actor W.C. Fields, a friend of his visited him in his hospital room and was surprised to find him thumbing through a Bible. Asked what he was doing with the Bible, Fields replied, I'm looking for loopholes. Everyone is appointed to die once and then face judgment. Everyone is accountable to God, 
every one of us must face God, there are no loopholes. There are loopholes in the Income Tax Act and other legal documents, but there are no loopholes when Christ comes to judge. Those who are without Christ, who do not know Christ as their personal Savior, will stand before the great white throne They'll be judged first out of the books that is to do with their works here on earth, and second, they'll be judged out of the book of life that is to do with their faith. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire that is, fire, that is to suffer eternal separation from God. By contrast, those who are in Christ those of us who know him as our Savior. We too will stand, not before the great white throne, but we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, not to be judged for condemnation, for there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, but to be judged for commendation, that is to say our unfruitful works will be burned up, and our fruitful works that are done for Christ will be rewarded. This is his second appearing for which we as Christians are waiting, not for the final judgment, that's for unbelievers, but we're waiting for our final redemption. That is the transformation and the translation of our bodies. And just as we die once, so Christ died once. But his death was different. He didn't die for his own sins, for he had no sin, but he died for the sins of others. He didn't die as the consequence of his own guilt, but the guilt of others. He offered himself once to bear the sins of many. The purpose of Christ's atoning sacrifice was to put away sins, verse 26 says. But not everyone, you see, enters into the benefits of his sacrifice, because many refused to believe him. Many refused to trust him. So notice the contrast then between verse 26 and verse 28. In verse 26, Christ's atoning sacrifice is described as being sufficient to put away sin. It's an absolute statement. His one final sacrifice dealt once and for all with the sin question. The penalty has been paid by his atoning death. It never needs to be repeated. He has put away sin and his sacrifice is sufficient for all people for all time to, uh, to come to repentance. That's verse 26. But in verse 28, Christ's atoning sacrifice is described as being effective for some to bear the sins of many. Yes, Christ died for all, the intent of which was to save some. Now, this is a doctrine that some people don't like. But to be frank, I don't care if they like it or not. It's in the Bible. And so we need to grapple with it. We need to wrestle with it until we see the grace of God in it. So he bore the sins of many. Yes, he died for all. The intent of his death was to save some. We have put our... Here's 1 Timothy 4.10. This is a pivotal verse 
for you to understand this distinction between the all for whom he died and the some whom he saved. We have put our hope, Paul says, in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. There's the distinction. Especially those who believe. John Owen put it this way. Now, this is a mouthful, but see if you can get this. All men die, but the relief granted by Christ, though it be unto men indefinitely, yet it extends not to all universally, but to many of them only. Now, that's a mouthful, so I thought I'd better give you a different one. (laughs) Another writer puts it this way. While the benefits of Christ's death came only to those who believe, yet Christ's death nevertheless was on behalf of all sinners. So the contrast is between the all who die in verse 27 and the many whose sins are remitted by his death. All people die, but only those who trust Christ are forgiven and released from the condemnation of sin. Just as our death is not the end, so Christ's death is not the end. He will appear a second time not to bear sin, in other words, not to deal with the sin question as he did at his first coming, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. He rose from the dead and he is coming again not to deal with the sin issue, totally apart from the sin question. The sin question was dealt with at the cross once and for all at his first coming. But his next appearing will be to complete salvation. What he accomplished on the cross at Calvary will have its fruition at his second coming. He will come again a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who don't look for him will await his judgment. But for those who have appropriated his finished work for themselves, who have trusted Christ and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins, and who are eagerly waiting for him to come again, for them, he will come again to complete their redemption. The benefit of Christ tasting death for everyone, as it says in chapter 2, verse 9, is only fully and finally realized by those who eagerly wait for him. That's the challenge to you this morning. Are you eagerly waiting for him? So the salvation of his people is the object of his one sacrifice. In the past, he offered himself to put away sins. In the present, he appears in the presence of God for us, pleading our cause before the face of God. And in the future, he will come again to complete the redemption of those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we worship the Christ who was crucified, the one who was buried, the one who rose again, the one who has ascended, exalted to God's right hand, appearing in the presence of God for us even now, and the one who is coming again. Today, as I said, is our communion service in which we remember and we proclaim Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross, a sacrifice that will never be repeated. 
So know this, this morning, that because of what Christ's one final sacrifice, today's sin is forgivable, and tomorrow's judgment is escapable. Today's sin is forgivable, and tomorrow's judgment is escapable. But you'll never escape judgment if you neglect, chapter 2, verse 3 says, if you neglect so great salvation. C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying, and I quote, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, he said, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play's over. What is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice. But this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. He goes on to say it will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use in saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen. Whether we realized it before or not. Now today, he says, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. End of quote. Judgment awaits those who are not covered by Christ's blood. The Greek motto of the ancient world was to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not unlike the philosophy of our own world, is it? Isn't it? Perhaps that's why some people try to find meaning and significance in life desperately in some of the ways that I mentioned. And here, eating, drinking, and being merry. Live for the present. Don't think about the future. Live life to the full. Just as surely as Christ came once to die for sin, so he will come again. At his first appearing, he offered one sacrifice for sin. At his second appearing, he will complete our redemption. Death and judgment wait, await those who reject him. But salvation and glory await those who are eagerly waiting for him. For us, as believers, judgment is, a, is behind and salvation is ahead. What a superior sacrifice that was. That one final sacrifice. And today in the Lord's Supper, we remember that sacrifice. All that it cost him. And all that it achieved. Let's pray together.
Lord God, as we reflect back on these verses, we realize afresh that really from our perspective, we can't fully understand the contrast because we've never lived in that era of continual, repeated sacrifices year after year. We've never heard the screams of the animals whose throats were slit and their blood was shed. We've never had to take animals to the high priest to be sacrificed on our behalf. But one thing we do appreciate and enter into, even though ever so feebly, is the one final sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ offered for us, cleansing us permanently and forever from our sins. As we remember him now, we pray that this truth may be imprinted indelibly on our minds and hearts. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing. Scott's going to come. And as we sing, invite the men to uh, come forward who are going to uh, serve the communion emblems for us.